So apologies for that little bit of confusion. It's always a bit of an issue, isn't it? Do you listen to the teacher or obey the schedule? We've ended up somewhere in between. So a middle path, we might say. So this evening I want to talk uh, around a theme. A couple of you may have heard me talk about this theme before, but it is just so central to the practice we are doing here. But not only that, this theme I want to talk about of contentment is something actually that is so central to all of our lives. Uh, 2,600 years ago about, exhausted by years, years, 10 years, you know, years of struggle, striving, resistance, the very young and quite disheartened and disappointed Siddhartha recalled a time, he remembered a time when he was a young boy sitting on a hillside and overlooking his father's land and watching a farmer plowing his fields. And he remembered that there had arisen in him in that moment a quite unexpected and unsought for, yet very powerful and sublime sense of contentment. He remembered a time, it was a time when he didn't have any thought of going anywhere any thought of getting anything. There was no sense of there being anything missing. And it was a moment that he remembered for its remarkable sense of ease and joy and stillness. It was a moment of contentment. And after these years of doing these very punitive, um, ascetic practices, it was that memory that was a very powerful turning point in Siddhartha's quest for liberation. Because it made him sit down and really look at what the difference is between aspiration and striving. It, really, it was a memory that really called him to examine the, the very powerful urges that had driven him in his life to look outside of himself, to look to the future, to look to experience for happiness, for peace, for freedom. And that memory made him question whether the freedom, the inner freedom that he sought for, whether this was going to be born of something that he gained or achieved, or whether this inner freedom he so sought for was going to be born of what he could let go of. Now, when you look at this teaching, this path, what you really see is this teaching of contentment as a quality and as something that we cultivate is something that is repeated time and time again. It's a t the teaching of contentment features so strongly in the teaching of loving-kindness and generosity. 
Contentment appears uh, or in the descriptions of the liberated heart, the free heart. It is often described as a sublime peace. And there's a poem I want to read to you from one of the early Chan nuns. She said, the entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals, I tramped amongst the mountain peak clouds. Home again, smiling, I finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all of its glory. Now I would encourage you to reflect on whether you can remember any moment of deep contentment yourself. Perhaps even there has been a moment today when you could just step outside and be touched by the loveliness of all that you see. Perhaps there may have been just one moment today when you felt yourself able to relax into stillness and felt a cooling of all the waves of agitation about where you want to go, about what, who you want to become, about what you want to get rid of. And in those moments when we can just relax into a stillness of being, I think what we feel is a kind of unbinding of the heart, a deep sense of inner ease. Perhaps there, there might even be longer moments you can recall in your life when all sense of insufficiency, when all sense of lack fades away and you can feel yourself to be present in the presence of all things. Now what do these moments, what do these moments of contentment actually teach us, no matter how brief they are. What do these moments teach us about the nature of happiness and the nature of unhappiness? The Buddha certainly spoke of contentment as the greatest of all blessings, and this is a teaching that is continued, I think, in all traditions. The Dalai Lama said, if one cultivates simplicity, contentment comes. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires, feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing, and shelter to protect you from the elements. And finally, there is extreme delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and cultivating helpful ones. So here we are in the business of abandoning faulty states of mind. And we will have a little look at what they might be. Now I think sometimes we hear the word contentment and it has a more negative connotation for us. Some of you might have grown up in families, you know, where you were kind of told in a scolding way, you know, be satisfied with what you have. You know, don't want for anything. You know, that you're, you're just kind of filled with 
with impatience or wanting. And I think even sometimes we can hear the word contentment and it has this sort of association of passivity. You know, we, we hear the word and you might have images, you know, of cows grazing in fields, you know, as moving from blade of grass to blade of grass. But as a doorway to freedom, as a doorway to freedom, the quality of contentment we are speaking about is not a bovine contentment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and nor is it a prescription in any way for resignation or for a surrender of aspiration. Instead, the, the way that we speak about contentment in the teaching is something that is so vital and alive and really the beginning of a life of freedom, of a liberated heart. Now I want to give you a little bit of a historical context of where this teaching of the four great contentments originally arose in this teaching. If you think back or try to imagine what it was like 2,600 years ago in India. Or try to imagine what it would be like for you, even in this culture, when the early Buddhist monks and nuns joined the Buddha in a homeless life. And we have to remember this really was a homeless life. You know, nothing to rely on, nothing to depend on, nothing predictable nothing to anticipate whether food would come today or not, whether there would be somewhere to rest or not. It was truly a life of, of a remarkable insecurity. Now, the ability to rest in a contented heart in that life was, was what made the difference between that life being a life of freedom and happiness and joy rather than a life of de desolation and deprivation. Now that is just as true for monks and nuns today <clears throat> as it, is, it was in the early days. Now some of the first instructions that the Buddha gave to the new monks and nuns were called the Four Great Contentments that were central to living a noble life. He said, be content with any robe you're given, whether it's lovely or shabby, or even if you're not given one at all. And here the Buddha cautioned against poverty conceit, saying, you know, don't think that just because, you know, you've got some kind of... Um, old shabby robe, you know, it makes you better than Sally down the road who's got a fine robe, you know, because the Buddha really knew the ingenuity of the human mind, you know, to keep making myself better than you, you know. The second was, be content with any food you are given, whether it's gourmet food or scraps from the floor, or even if you are given no food at all. The third was, be content with any lodging you are given, aware of what lodging is for, and not worrying if you are given no lodging at all. You could imagine hotel receptionists around the world, retreat managers, families getting happier and happier if they ever heard these teachings. 
And again, the Buddha cautioned about, about conceit, not using one's own contentment to judge others. And the fourth great contentment was to discover the happiness born of unskillful states of mind and the happiness born of developing unbounded, happy, unbounded freedom and skillful states of mind. Now clearly what the Buddha was talking about or pointing to in these encouragements was about attitude. It was all about attitude, about the relationship we have with our world, about the relationship we have with all things in our world. He didn't teach contentment about endurance or as a cultivation of misery, but he really taught this contentment as a cultivation of joy. Now, we are not monks and nuns, right? We have a lot of things often. So we might think, okay, well, this is a fine teaching for monks and nuns. What does it mean for us as lay people living in this world, living in a world of relating to other people, relating to things, relating to objects, relating to everything we have? But the teaching of contentment is actually not about what we have or what we don't have. The heart of this teaching of contentment is no longer agreeing to the world of conditions, whether it's food, clothing, experience, no longer agreeing to the world of conditions as to be the gatekeeper of our happiness and freedom. I think this is such a central teaching. Now, if you think about any single moment, you might have had a few today, you know, because People come to retreat centers, they don't get what they want. This is the nature of the beast, you know. We don't put it in our literature, you get what you want. We often don't get what we want. We, we, we don't get the roommate we want. We don't get the yogi job we want. We don't get the non-supper, <coughs> the supper <coughs> we wanted. <coughs> so many things we don't get, you know. And if you think of any single moment, even today, where we have really wrestled with the world of conditions, the weather, the food, your roommate, your cushion, if you think about that wrestling with the world of conditions, I need this, I can't bear this, I must have this, I have to get rid of this. If you think of any moment when you are wrestling today, you would probably, if you look at those moments very closely, you would recognize they are moments of real unhappiness. In fact, to deliver the happiness of our own hearts to the world of conditions is to instantly suffer. It's to experience the suffering of discontent. Now, we would all recognize that there are many conditions in our life which can be extremely difficult and hard to tolerate and hard to be with. It's not at all to say that these conditions in the world are neutral. There are many conditions in life which are indeed hard to bear. But I think the radical teaching here is the Buddha's statement that none of these conditions, even those that are so difficult, ever had the power 
the power to project us into distress, anxiety, fear, and a sense of insufficiency. This is something that is happening in our minds, and it's a power that is given to and handed to this world of changing, uncertain, unpredictable conditions that we have never been able to control. Now again, we might say, well, okay, well, you know, this is a fine teaching for the middle classes who can manipulate their world. But this was a teaching the Buddha offered to the poorest disciples in India. Now central to this teaching of the four great contentments is this very simple statement that the source of joy and the source of sorrow, the source of content and the source of discontent really lies within our own hearts. Kabir <coughs> had this wonderful poem that he wrote about this. He said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman, no tow rope and no one to pull it, no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. Do you believe that there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Now we think this, this understanding <clears throat> or this inquiry about where the source of sorrow and the source of joy truly lies, I think the understanding of that is really the beginning of contentment. Because every moment of discontent is, is like a heavenly messenger waving to us from the crowd. Every moment we feel the surges of distress, of I don't want, I don't like, I need. It's like that surge has written on it this, this reminder, this invitation, just to stop, to, to be still. And, and to be aware of where we, were, where we are delivering the calmness and the peace of our own hearts into the hands of conditions that we can't always control, but that we can understand and that we can find balance and freedom within. Now, contentment, in my understanding, is not a feeling or a state of experience. Instead, it really has a lot more to do with what we are choosing to do with our attention. Have you noticed the magnetism that we can often feel to feed the discontented mind? You know, something's amiss, something's not quite how we want it to be. You know, we don't like something. Have you noticed that tendency to want to feed that discontented mind endlessly with thoughts, with insistence, with demand? Or 
if we are aware, we can choose to do something else with our attention. We can remember that the capacity we have to return to just this moment, to calm the waves, to cultivate contentment. There's a short piece of a poem by David White where he says, Enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. Now, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha identified the forces, uh, the force of craving as one of a very small number of forces that hold the power to dispossess us of freedom and to cause immense struggle and sorrow and distress. In fact, the Buddha likened craving to a thief who takes up residence in our hearts, who has a mission to convince us of insufficiency and to steal the contentment and freedom possible for us. He talked about craving as being this power that sends us to roam the world for what we believe to be lacking in ourselves. And the Buddha, as you probably know, had a whole lot to say about craving. Talked about it as a fire that consumes everything in its path, including our own happiness and well-being. Now, I've always found the Buddha to be a very helpful character because it really provides a lot of roadmaps. You know, he didn't just say, here's the problem, you know, suck it up. You know, he kind of said, like, here's the problem. Let's look at the problem. Let's look at where it arises for. Let's look at the prognosis. And let's look at the path to reach that healing and freedom. So he provided this roadmap of craving, which I think uh, probably we can all pretty much follow in our own minds and hearts and lives. So three kinds of craving, very short list to remember. The craving for sensual pleasure, the craving for becoming, to become, and the craving for non-becoming. So let's look at this first one, the craving, the craving for sensual pleasure. Now, there are, for all of us, countless moments of loveliness each day. The sight of the birds, the sun, sometimes loveliness in the mind, lovely thoughts, lovely emotions of kindness, of generosity, of empathy, lovely sounds. And it is so important for us to appreciate and delight in the moments of loveliness because they gladden our hearts. They bring a sense of spaciousness and sensitivity and connectedness. I find, you know, that because people have this association, you know, with, with Buddhist teaching as being kind of grim, 
I find that sometimes people in practice feel almost like afraid of the lovely, as if they're doing a more noble and virtuous practice if they're <coughs> spending every moment grappling with suffering. You know, it's, it's like a colleague of mine, uh, he, he said he sometimes looks at people on retreat and it kind of looks like the march of the condemned. <laughs> you know? But this kind of grimness, you know, this kind of over-earnestness is really not the essence of this practice. Because loveliness is part of the fabric of experience, and in many ways, in the lovely, we can get such a taste of contentment. Have you noticed that? that? Sometimes in those moments when you really feel connected with the lovely, the heart just calms. The heart just stills. There's, there's not a sense of, of busyness, what am I going to do with this? It's just, ah, the tasting of that loveliness. Pleasure in itself has never been a problem or an obstacle in this practice. Never been a problem or an obstacle to freedom. But if you notice something else can creep in in relationship to the lovely, you know, perhaps you stand outside in the evening here and you see the sun setting sometimes at nights and it's so gorgeous. And you notice sometimes you could just stand there and see the sunset and then you have the thought, I uh, don't think I'll do that next sitting. I need a little more of this. You know, I think I'm just going to hang out here for a while. You know, you have the loveliness of a nice meal at lunchtime. And then the thought arises, tomorrow I'm first in the line, you know, because then I can be first in the line for seconds. You know, it's like that sense of how do I get the more? How do I keep this? How do I hold on to this? How do I make it stay the same? you have a thought about a person you enjoy. And if you notice how it often then arises, I have a few more of those, you know, a few fantasies about that person, you know, plans, rehearsals, what I'm going to do with them. Craving even has the power to destroy the initial pleasant contact. You know, I teach in Switzerland at um, a center there, high up in the Alps, you know, and and the meditation room windows, these huge picture windows that look out over the Alps. But it, it's breathtaking. It's, it's one of the most beautiful things, sights you could ever imagine. And I remember a, a student, you know, remarking to me, as everyone does there, you know, the absolute delight of the scenery. And, and, then, and then she came the next year and, you know, she said, this isn't as pretty as I remembered it. <laughs> You know, and I was really sure the Alps hadn't changed that much <laughs> in 12 months. But the mind makes it less beautiful because it wants to freeze something in time. It even wants to make it mine. You know, my experience that I want to repeat. And then what happens? Disappointment. Sometimes we also employ craving or craving for central pleasure to get rid of suffering. Have you noticed today, like if you've had an unpleasant mental state, how you think, oh, oh fantasy would be good here. <laughs> In? Or, or, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of discontented at home. You know, you open the fridge, turn on the TV, you know, go to the bar, 
You know, we use craving to try and get rid of suffering, and instead it just compounds suffering. What we're trying to do in the craving for sensual pleasure is to create a world where we only have pleasant sensations. Now, I'm pretty sure, at least intellectually, we would all agree that this mission is doomed to failure. That doesn't stop us trying. It doesn't stop us trying. And I think the subtext in that is that I can only be happy when in contact with the pleasant. That I can only be content when I'm connected with the pleasant. And that the unpleasant is this threat of, of chaos and, and disconnection and desolation. In those moments where we're so caught in seeking, pursuing, roaming, contentment can feel very far away. But I would really ask you to question if that's true or if contentment is really not right here in our capacity to cool the fires of craving and to be still. There's another poem from the Chan tradition. It says, spring morning on the lake, the wind merges with the rain. Worldly matters are like flowers that fall only to bloom again. I retire to contemplate behind closed doors a place of true joy, while the floating clouds come and go the whole day long. We talk about the second craving, the craving to become, the craving for becoming. I mean, I'm sure that we can all remember our childhood fantasies about who we wanted to be when we grow up. Actually, some of you might still have them. About who we want to become, who we want, to, the, the ideal person, right? The, the ideal becoming, the ideal image. The various fantasies, you know, of being the perfect mother, you know, the perfect partner, the perfect success. You know, and for many of us, a lot of these fantasies might just be distant memories. But when we're seeking to become someone, something, we don't, we're not always aware of how discontented we are in that moment with who we are and how we are. And I think this is an almost an existential discontent. You know, that kind of ongoing self-judgment, self-denial, the better person, the better experience, the better becoming, almost as if we can never actually have enough or feel to be good enough. Now, the moments that we launch into those cravings, and sometimes, you know, it's just a craving to become a better meditator, you know, to have a better mind, to have a better experience. But those moments that we start to pursue that craving to become, it is also a movement of rejection and abandonment. It's not only a movement away from what is, it's very often a movement away from acceptance and kindness and contentment.
And again, it's easy to try and use craving to become as a solution. For example, some of you have done retreats before. Many of you have done retreats before. Any of you have any images of what a good meditation looks like? Has something to do with what a good meditator looks like, right? So people get frustrated with themselves, you know? They tell themselves, I'm an experienced meditator. I shouldn't be falling asleep. My meditation should always be bright and alert. I should be the best yogi. I want to be perfect yogi. I want to be still. I want to be kind. I want to be generous. I want to be accepting. This is all the craving to become, and the list is endless. Now, I will talk in a minute about the difference between that list and wholesome aspiration. But you can feel the energy of it when it's riding on the back of discontent. The and the sense of failure. I wasn't kind enough. Now, the craving for non-existence or the craving for non-becoming is the other extreme. I mean, certainly at its most extreme form, it's a desire for suicide. It's a desire to die. But in its milder forms, also suffering, it's really the wanting, the feeling that the need that something must go away, must disappear out of the fear that will be overwhelmed and annihilated if it doesn't go away. Now, I want you to just track that in the day-to-day, -day, you know, because this can be really a minor thing that arises in relationship to the unpleasant. You know, the person besides us coughs. We have a restless sitting partner. The sound of the fan. I need this to go away in order to be happy in order to be peaceful, in order to be free. But that is really tiny, isn't it? What about the major disappointments in our lives, the major sense of failures, the major sense of betrayals are met with the same reactions? We all meet unpleasant events, unpleasant people, unpleasant sensations, unpleasant emotions, unpleasant thoughts. And the fear of not being able to bear, the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of, is a powerful force of aversion that leads us to struggle, to reject, to seek for non-existence. The non-existence of this, sometimes the non-existence of the me who is experiencing this, the sense of self who is experiencing this. Now, when we begin to track the movements of craving in our day, in our mind, in our hearts, it can seem so pernicious and so pervasive that it's almost inconceivable to imagine an end. What would our life look like? What would our heart look like? What would our mind look like in the cessation of craving? But, you know, in this teaching, that's what we are invited to imagine. Because the Buddha speaks of nibbana, or of liberation, as blowing out the fire of craving. Not necessarily as some huge ultimate breakthrough, but as a practice. As a practice, and that's what's so important. This is a practice. Cultivating contentment is a practice. We cultivate it in the face of all those powerful surges of craving that urge us to pursue something we don't have, 
to get rid of something we do have, to avoid something we might get. This is where we practice and cultivate contentment in all the moments when we find ourselves leaning into the future that hasn't arrived, seeking to become something else, denying what is, knowing that these, you know, these are paths are not bad. They're paths of unhappiness. That's what's so important to see. These are practices of suffering. You know, these are practices of discontent. And in those moments, that's where we cultivate contentment. Now, this practice of cooling the fires of craving is not a sacrifice of aspiration. It's not a sacrifice of all the very wholesome desires and longings that are at the heart of this journey, the very wholesome desires and longings that brought us all here, the longings for peace, longings for love, the longings for kindness and freedom. In truth, these longings are not separate from the fabric of contentment. They are part of it because they are answerable. This is the difference between craving and aspiration. Craving is unanswerable. It doesn't ever have an answer. Aspiration is realizable. It is answerable. It's a poem again from the Chan tradition. It says, I urge those of you who aspire to enlightenment. In aspiring to enlightenment, you must be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara? Now we don't always see craving as craving, but we sometimes do see it as agitation and restlessness more easily. You know, when the mind is so full of thoughts and plans, you know, the eyes are prowling. Have you noticed that sometimes today, you know, your eyes are just prowling. We're just prowling the world. When our body is so hard to be still, when we feel impatient, frustration, judgmental, all of this is agitation. It's kind of the more visible face of discontent. But if we're willing, if we're willing, in all those moments we're agitated, just to look underneath the first layer of agitation and to ask what is the root of it. What do you see but craving? If you look at craving more closely, look at that, that, that need to become, the need to get, the need to get rid of it. If you look at that more closely and look underneath that layer of craving, what do you see? The belief in insufficiency. The belief in insufficiency. And if we can find the collectedness in ourselves to look craving in the eye, it will probably become evident to us how much the anxiety of me, the anxiety of me is central to all of those surges. Now, a sense of insufficiency, the sense of not having, not being enough, is the belief system of the anxiety of me. 
And this goes right to the heart of the teaching of liberation. Because if the anxiety of me is left, is believed in, and left unquestioned, then discontent and its offspring of craving will follow, just as night follows day. Now, this is a simple but not an easy truth. But if we don't make our home in agitation and follow its waves, then we don't make our home in craving. If we don't make our home in craving, then we don't make our home in insufficiency. And this is the heart of the teaching of the four great contentments. It's the Buddha pointing towards what he described as the heart that is luminous, radiant, without boundaries, essentially stepping into homelessness where everywhere is home when it is not obscured by agitation. <clears throat> now, I think in an ideal world, we would discover in ourselves an unshakable freedom and contentment. And in the light of that discovery, all the layers of agitation and craving would just quite naturally fall away. Now, this might happen for some very exceptional yogi. I have never met them yet. But for everyone else, what happens is we're asked to cultivate contentment, to unbind our hearts from the grip of agitation and craving by making a commitment to contentment. It's actually a commitment we make. Now, one of the ways that the belief of insufficiency manifests is in the form of doubt. You probably might have encountered this, some of you, today. You know, when you've come here filled with, you know, great excitement and anticipation, then you arrive and you think, what am I doing here? Whatever was I thinking of? It's doubt. Hmm? It's quite, it rises very easily in retreats. It arises very easily in our lives. It's a belief in insufficiency, self-doubt. Doubt in a possibility of genuine transformation. Doubting our own capacity. Doubting the teachers. Doubting the path. And you know, have you noticed what doubt does? It makes you waver, doesn't it? It makes your intention waver. Notice today, you know, oh, you might have got up this morning, you know, uh, intending to have a totally dedicated day of practice. One sitting or one walking, and you face the uncooperative mind or body, and, and you notice how that intention just gets ditched, you know? I'm going for a hike. You know, stuff this. I'm going for a hike. I'm going for a nap. I'm doing anything to get out of here, you know? What are we getting out of? My mind. That's what we're trying to get out of. You know, you might have seen you go into a walking period with the intention to sustain the walking from the beginning to the end, you know. Halfway down your path, you know, much better idea comes, you know. Something urgently needs doing in my room, I'm sure, you know. I probably do need to brush my teeth one more time. But doubt is really feeding off this hidden belief in insufficiency. And when it makes our intention waver, that wavering further convinces us of insufficiency. You notice that? I can't do it. I didn't do it. I can't do it. 
So intention becomes something inaccessible for us because we get in this toxic loop of doubt, wavering intentions, more doubt, wavering intentions. What do we do with this? We just calm down. <laughs> we just calm down. We don't indulge the doubt. In reality, we just... Intention and commitment are in many ways our greatest allies in this path. But maybe we do make a commitment to just one breath. Maybe we make a commitment to just one step. Maybe we make a commitment to just one sitting. Maybe we make a commitment to being present in just one moment. And yet every time we make that commitment, it truly is a cultivation of contentment. It's a cultivation of freedom. And it's that cultivation of freedom as in the forefront of our practice, the cultivation of contentment that allows the unbinding from craving, from agitation, from anxiety of me, from insufficiency. It is what allows for freedom. I want to end with just one poem uh, written, formed by an early monk. It's a kind of warrior poem. It says, when the thundering storm cloud roars out of the mist and torrents of rain fill the paths of the birds, nestled in a mountain cave, the monk, the nun, meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom in winding wreaths adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank glad-minded, the yogi meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest the rain david drizzles and the fanged beasts cry, nestled in a mountain cave, the yogi meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When restraining themselves in their discursive thoughts, devoid of fear and barrenness, the yogi meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When the yogi is happy, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, having ended all the unskillful, they meditate. No greater contentment than this can be found. If we have just a moment quietly together and then we'll go into the walking period. Thank you for your attention. If we could come back, because um, we're running a little bit out of schedule, if we could come back at, um, at 10 to 9 to sit, and we'll ha just have a short sitting to end the day.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.